Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, we're taking a break from our occasional series on Rwanda to talk with Max Bergholz. Max is Associate Professor of History at Concordia... Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, we're taking a break from our occasional series on Rwanda to talk with Max Bergholz. Max is Associate Professor of History at Concordia University in Montreal, and author of a terrific new book titled Violence as a Generative Force, Identity, Nationalism, and Memory in a Balkan Community. A few years ago on the podcast, I talked about what I called Genocide Studies Earthquake Problem. What I meant by that is that scientists have, through careful study, identified physical signs that an earthquake is possible, even likely in a region. But they can't say exactly when it will happen, and in some cases, the precursors subside, and nothing happens at all. Max's book is, in some ways, addressing this earthquake problem. Among many other projects, he's interested in understanding why situations with great potential for violence sometimes erupt into mass atrocities but other times do not. Beyond that, he's interested in the impacts, short-term and long-term, of this violence or its absence on the self-understandings of perpetrators, victims, and onlookers. Working in a book that is by nature interdisciplinary, Max brings a distinctly historical conception and execution to the book, and it's one of those books that everybody in the field is going to have to wrestle with in the future. Uh, this has been widely recognized. The Association for the Study of Nationality, in fact, recently awarded Max its 2017 Harriman Book Prize for the book. I've been looking forward to talking with Max for some time, so I'm eager to start. So, Max, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks so much for inviting me here today. So I'd like to start just by giving you a chance to say something about um, who you are and how you became interested in the study of history and, and especially about in, in the study of Balkan history. Sure, sure. So I'm a professor of history here in the Department of History at Concordia University. Um, I've been working here for just over six years, and I completed my PhD at the University of Toronto, where I specialized in Balkan and East European history. So I, I discovered my interest in history um, after switching around majors when I was an undergraduate. Um, I've always been interested in writing uh, literature, poetry, short stories. And it wasn't until I had my, my first uh, history course, which happened to be on the Holocaust, where my interests um, really... Uh, it was the first time I really discovered something um, at the academic level where I felt... Uh, truly passionate uh, about reading and writing and thinking. And it, it was also signified the moment where my, my seriousness as a student changed dramatically. 
um, uh, which I, I think happens. I see it now with a lot of my students in a good way. It was, it was really the moment where I, I realized that, uh, that, you know, working hard at university is something um, that can be done when one is truly passionate about a topic. And that's what happened with me. Um, and then it wasn't too long after that, um, after, after taking many different kinds of courses uh, in various geographical and temporal periods that I had great luck to, uh, to have discovered in the course catalog, uh, I think it was the winter term of 1997. So just a few years after the wars uh, of Yugoslav disintegration, uh, at least, at least uh, not including Kosovo, but up in, including Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina, um, just a few years after they had, had wound down and finished, that uh, there was a scholar at my university whose name was Denizen Rusinal, who had worked for several decades in what used to be called uh, the American, I think it was called American University's field staff, uh, which were these interesting jobs that don't exist anymore, where uh, different kinds of scholars would be placed in countries, uh, oftentimes uh, during the Cold War in the socialist world, to, to essentially watch the situation and write reports and come and lecture at universities. And so he had been in Yugoslavia at least 20 years, if not more. And so he had come back to the United States and was offering a class at the University of Pittsburgh called Use and Abuse of History in the Disintegration of Yugoslavia. And I had, I had known a little bit about this war. I had followed it a bit in the newspaper, reading the New York Times, but I didn't know much. And I took this course and it was really... Um, that was where my interest in this part of the world began. Uh, and it took me a few years to make the commitment to, uh, to really decide to begin learning the languages, which I began doing once I, once I finished my undergraduate studies and began my master's degree, uh, in 2000. And, uh, I think between 2000, um, and now I've probably been to the region 14 or 15 out of those uh, out of those years, 14 or 15 times out of those years. So, so it's really become uh, an integral part of my life, the region, the language, and the history. Um, but it all actually began at the undergraduate level. Um, I tried to shift into other topics because I wanted to, to read as widely as possible, but I kept coming back to this part of the world. It was the one that I um, would, would want to be thinking about when I woke up in the morning. And it was the one that I would be reading about late into the night. And I think that's Maybe perhaps for me at least, that, that was one way in which I gauged whether I was ready to really uh, spend a lot of time researching and learning languages that uh, I had to have that level of passion. And uh, I'm not sure why, but for, for, for me, this was the part of the world that really captured me uh, on the inside. Sometimes when I tell people, when people ask me in the region uh, the same question you did, um, and I, I explain these, these, these details, they kind of look at me and they say, well, maybe you were Bosnian in a former life. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's maybe there's something there. I I, I can't I can't say for sure. Um, so so that's that's a bit about how I how I came to be interested in this part of the world. So when other historians ask you what your specialty is, is it Balkan history? Is it the history of violence? How do you understand your your field? Well, my position at my university was initially uh, tailored as a professorship in genocide and human rights studies. And when I was working on my doctorate, my doctorate dealt much more with the dynamics of historical memory of violence. So I, I, was, I had devoted much more time uh, during my doctoral studies to thinking about how people deal with the legacy of violence, uh, both as survivors and perpetrators or 
when one inhabits the same, both of those identities. Uh, and I was, I was interested in, in exploring those dynamics at the local level, always. I've always been interested in, in researching small communities. So when I was a doctoral candidate, I saw myself as a historian of Europe with particular interest in uh, the histories of Eastern Europe and especially the Balkans and the former Yugoslavia. And as I was conducting my research, I was needing to spend more and more time trying to understand the dynamics of violence because uh, I think uh, sometimes this was, this was one of the criticisms that I developed while I was working on in, at, at, during my graduate studies was that the, 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 the work on the memory of violence was too divorced from the actual research on violence, that the two uh, were in a sense segmented from each other when they actually, those two, those two subfields, if we could call them that, needed to be brought into closer dialogue because the dynamics of memory oftentimes emerge out of specific dynamics of violence and that uh, there's, there's a reciprocal relationship in terms of explaining one with the other that I felt was not, uh, was not clear. And it was something that I found myself drifting more toward. As I wanted to look at, for example, the dynamics of memory of violence in the former Yugoslavia after the Second World War, so during the 1950s and 1960s, I was continuously having to spend more time reconstructing uh, how people came to engage in violence in the first place. And so this was a transformation that was taking place as I was finishing my doctorate. And once I, I got this job, um, it was, a, in a sense, a new direction for me, which was to really spend much more time engaging with the literature uh, on mass violence and its various uh, sub-disciplines. So, for example, genocide studies, uh, which is what this podcast is about, but also uh, work done by a lot of social scientists on different aspects of violence, from riots to civil war, uh, even work by social psychologists on individuals who participate in various forms of violence. So... What, how would I characterize myself now? I'm, I'm a historian of Europe with interest in, particularly at the micro-historical level, of the ways in which people engage in violence, the ways in which people remember violence. And I've always had an interest during this period in the ways in which national identity or ethnicity um, is a factor or is not a factor in the dynamics of violence and memory. So those would be my main interests, memory, nationalism, and violence. In the, in the Balkans in particular, in Europe more generally, and always from a multidisciplinary perspective. So that's a great description, although I'm not sure how well it fits on a business card. Um, <laughs> let's look at the book, and we're going to do something a little different with today's interviews than, than typically. We're going to start, or I'm going to ask you to start at the end, at least to some degree, toward the end. I'm wondering if you could explain to the listeners what happened in, um, and I, again, I hope I get this pronounced right. Kulan Vakuf, correct me when, when, when there's time, but... Kulan Vakuf, yeah. Um, in the 48 hours starting on the morning of the 6th of September of 1941. Right, so so you're asking about what is essentially the climax of the book, uh, and, and in a sense, the way I came to even begin researching this book was discovering a few clues about these 48 hours that took place. Uh, it was a time in which uh, approximately... 2,000 people were killed. And so, uh, so essentially on this morning, the town of Kulinvaka, if you need to imagine, uh, it's, it's actually a very small place. You can, I was just there um, just a few months ago uh, visiting some friends. And uh, you can walk across the town in about five minutes. 
so it's a very small place and it straddles the Una River, which is this amazing natural wonder in northwest Bosnia. Uh, the water is emerald green uh, due to its purity, due to the content of sediments and it's flowing directly out of mountains. There's no industry nearby. Uh, so it's this kind of ridiculously beautiful place. Uh, there's a bridge that spans that connects the, both sides of the town together. There's a mosque in the center of the town with a minaret that reaches up for the sky. And so on the morning of September 6, 1941, the town was filled with about 5,600 refugees. Uh, in that number were also uh, various uh, fighters um, who had been affiliated to varying degrees with what had been called at the time the independent state of Croatia. Small groups of these armed men had participated in massacres during the previous months of Orthodox Christians uh, who were at least nominally considered to be Serb by nationality in the region. And on this day, after a series of conflicts over the previous months in response to those massacres, there had been a rebellion. And so all of these refugees had been squeezed into Kulinvakov. Um, there was no way out except to try and escape along a, a winding road that led up through the mountains to a plateau. And they were on their way toward a town, the main town, one of the main towns in northwestern Bosnia called Bihać. So at dawn, this long column begins climbing out of the town along this dirt road uh, with switchbacks leading up the mountains. Um, at the front were armed men, and the vast majority of people in the column were either in horse-drawn carriages or walking. Many had been forced to leave their homes uh, the previous few days due to, due to attacks by these rebels. About two hours outside of Kulinvakov, they came near several villages. One was called Perkosi, the other one was called Chovka, and it's a place on the road where there's this natural spring, so water is gushing out of these old stones uh, that have been have been were, were built in this area, probably going back to maybe uh, the eighteenth the or even the seventeenth century. And it was at this it was in this this space, these several hundred meters between these two villages where the rebels began shooting at the column. And in the space of several hours, they shot to death somewhere between three to 500 people. Um, about 3,100 of the column managed to break through the ambush and they continued on their way for the rest of the day into the evening and managed to, re to reach Bihać. Um, but another 2,000 or so people were left stranded on the road. They were eventually uh, captured among these insurgents who were who were committing who basically carried out this ambush. Um, it was a it was a varied group. Some were very much interested in taking revenge for the the previous months of killing of their own uh, relatives and neighbors um, who had been killed by representatives, people who claimed to speak on behalf of those in Kulinvakov, um, who were nominally Muslim and Catholic, and. Um, so among those rebels, there was, there was a struggle that took place. There were some who wanted to simply finish everyone off and take complete revenge. And there were others um, who felt that only those who had actually committed violence needed to be dealt with um, in that way. And the rest needed to be set free. Um, because in this area, up until 1941, there had not been a long history of violence. Um, so what took place was about 2,000 of those people were then taken back to Kulinvakov. They were divided into several groups. Um, there was uh, a large group of women and children um, sent off about a kilometer outside of town. 
into a series of meadows by the Una River. There are about 400 to 420 men and boys who are taken uh, near the mosque in the center of town and held there. Uh, and then there was another group of women and children who were taken to the old, uh, what would have been the police station, uh, which was a little bit further down the river near a bridge. It was at this point on the evening of September 6th that uh, the group of fighters who were most in favor of what I call in the book a restrained approach to violence, in other words, committing revenge only against those who were believed to have committed previous acts of violence and not categorically against everyone perceived to be um, Muslim and perceived, therefore perceived to be, at least among those interested in revenge, perceived to be automatically an enemy. A number of those individuals left Kulin Vakruf. They had heard about other battles going on nearby, and they felt that their rebellion was somewhat in danger and they needed to go deal with these more pressing issues. And they set up a series of guards to take care of these prisoners, which, whom, they, whom they had ordered to be led out of the region the next day. Those people they placed in charge began drinking alcohol. They broke into houses and stores in Kulin Vakuf. They began ransacking the place. Um, and so the environment that evening became very unstable in the town. They began setting houses on fire. So you can imagine the atmosphere, armed men who are intoxicated, buildings being set on fire, more and more local peasants who had suffered massacres by, uh, it, during those previous waves of violence in the summer began streaming into the town, looking to steal things, looking to take back things that had been stolen from them. And of course, looking for revenge. And it was at this point that several of the men guarding the prisoners demanded to know where some of the mass graves were, um, where some of their relatives had been killed earlier in the summer. Several of the prisoners were forced to show them. Um, they began ordering those prisoners to unearth the bodies. And so it's another factor that created this environment of destabilization, of essentially um, dragging out bodies that had been killed in the previous weeks and months. The rebels begin looking at them, the insurgents, as well as the local peasants. And all of these factors came together to produce this frenzy of revenge that started during the night between September 6th and into September 7th. Um, people were killed. Eventually, this individuals start to be killed um, at certain points, and eventually it becomes um, this, this mass activity with, um, with at least a 1,000 people killed. Uh, during the night of September 6th and into September 7th. Uh, women were and, and children were thrown into the river where they drowned. Some of them threw themselves and their children into the river uh, off a bridge rather than be cut to pieces by, by others who had axes or beaten to death with clubs. People were clubbed to death uh, with sticks or with rocks. Um, aside from that ambush that took place uh, earlier in the day on September 6th, very few people were actually shot to death. It was a very very much a hands-on massacre. Um, and then another group of women and children were discovered the next day who managed to move a kilometer or so up the hill and were hiding in an old fortress. Uh, they were taken to a, a, a vertical cave where they were bludgeoned to death and cut with axes and thrown in. Um, the last group of prisoners were these men and boys, about 400 or 420, who during the nights of September 7th uh, were taken about 15 kilometers down the road to a village called Martinbrod, um, a Serbian village. They were held there until the next day on September 8th. So this is now approximately 48 hours after this whole group of refugees tried to flee Kulin Vakuf. 
And it was here in Martinbrod that there was another struggle. Uh, a man showed up who was one of the rebel leaders and insisted that all 400 or so of the men and boys should be executed, that they were all enemies. But other local residents who knew some of these men, who had been friends with them, um, challenged him. Uh, and there was a, a fight that took place, first with words, in which some people were arguing that uh, in that group of 400 and so men or boys were, were only a handful of, of individuals who should be dealt with so harshly and the rest should be set free. Um, and this, this, this struggle went on for some time, and eventually the group in favor of collective revenge managed to prevail and they took these 400 or so men and boys about five kilometers or so up into the hills. They found uh, it was a, a place known only to local people uh, called the Pigeon Cave, or Golubnacha is how it's pronounced in the local language. And in this cave, in groups of about 16 or 20, they brought these men and boys uh, and threw them to their deaths and cut their throats. And so it was in these 48 hours that about 2,000 people were killed who tried to flee Kulinvakov. This was the culmination of a series of massacres that had taken place. Um, and so the book is really about trying to understand how a community that had a very, not, not a strong tradition of, of inter-ethnic or inter-communal violence uh, came to be characterized by such a shocking level of violence among neighbors, uh, where in which most of the people committing the killings had at least some familiarity, if not intimate knowledge, of the people they were killing. Uh, and this last phase that I've narrated is really the, the culmination of that. And what I try and do along the way in the book is really deconstruct these massacres into their component parts and try to understand moment by moment, hour by hour, really what um, what takes a what what transforms an atmosphere that has a potential for violence into one in which we actually see um, actual killing. Uh, rather than just simply using uh, factors such as ideology or the commands of leaders, I try and analyze this from the ground up um, so that the, the, uh, the importance of contingency is really something I try and emphasize throughout every page of the book. So, so you talk about the there was not a tradition of violence. Can you say something a little bit about how the people in that region, the Kulambaka region, how did they see themselves? Um, and how did they see their neighbors? And, and obviously this changes over time, but can you give a quick sketch of to, to support this idea that there was no long-term history of violence? Sure. Well, what, one of the things I, I did once I began uh, researching this very deeply is I went back um, as far as I could into the region, so all the way to uh, to the very end of the 17th century, which is when the, the town of Kulinvakov was founded as an Ottoman military um, what it was called a capitania or a fortification, kind of a fortress on the the far northwestern edge of the Ottoman Empire. So I went all the way back and and tried to find literally every document I could uh, about this region. So one of the first things I wanted to do was to discover, um, you know, maybe this area was characterized by ongoing violence uh, between uh, those who would be considered to be nominally Muslim and those who would be considered to be Christian. Uh, both either Catholic or Orthodox. And so I was, I was first looking for instances of violence um, that would have taken place at all, and then, of course, along um, a confessional divide. And, and so one of the things that surprised me the most was that there really was not a lot of evidence that would indicate that violent, that, this, that the history of this area was characterized by regular instances of intercommunal violence. Uh, the first major instance that takes place is during the Peasant Rebellion, uh, which took place in Bosnia and Herzegovina 
between 1875 and 1878. Um, and even here, when I began researching what took place in the Kulinvakov region, um, as much as one would find evidence of, of Muslim and Muslim versus Orthodox Christian violence on that axis, um, one also finds evidence of, for example, Orthodox Christian rebels uh, attacking um, fellow Orthodox Christians who refused to join them in the rebellion. Um, or uh, local Muslim warlords uh, behaving in, 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 in very threatening ways and sometimes even violent ways uh, towards uh, supposedly fellow Muslims who were refusing to engage in violence against Orthodox neighbors. So, so, the, the, so, the, so there's one example. And then the other examples I found um, were not until the creation of what is usually considered to, to, or what is usually called the first Yugoslavia. It was officially called the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes in 1918. Um, and there was a period of, of uh, instability uh, in the region, particularly once the new government instituted uh, what was called agrarian reform, so redistributing the land that was held previously by Muslim landlords um, who had been uh, essentially created while during the long period of Ottoman rule in the region. They were uh, those who could own large parcels of land. So the new, the new government after 1918 began redistributing this land and before some of the land could be redistributed, local Christian peasants, particularly Orthodox, began rising up and, and trying to take land forcibly from their, their former landlords. So there's an instance of violence. But again, just like in the Peasant Rebellion of the late 19th century, one also finds interesting examples of intercommunal um, assistance. So a group, to give you an example... Uh, a group of Orthodox, uh, Orthodox Christians come to Kulinvakov shortly after the establishment of the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes, uh, 1918, 1919, with the intention of attacking former Muslim landlords. They are met not far from the entrance of the town by a group of people who insist that they put down their weapons. And this group is led by the local Orthodox priest. His name was Vukosav Milanovic, Father Vukosav Milanovic, along with others, uh, other notable local Orthodox Christians, some of whom were merchants or, or notable peasants, and, uh, and, and warned them that they were not to do any harm, and, in their words, to our Muslim brothers. So the evidence, the evidence, so far as it exists, and it's difficult to find evidence when one is doing uh, such a local history of a rural region, but the evidence, so far as it exists, shows few instances of violence, and even during these instances, shows... Um, regular examples of intercommunal alliances and assistance, um, which really called into question this idea that uh, I think even I had as I began this research of, of kind of ethnic cleavages being such uh, a crucial mechanism in this part of Europe, and that by looking at conflict along those lines, I would essentially discover the answer, uh, whatever answers it is I was looking for, um, to explain these 48 hours in 1941. Every time I discovered documents, they complicated the, the preconceived ideas I had about the importance of ethnic cleavages. So, of course, this, the immediate start of this happened with the overthrow of, of the government of Yugoslavia and replacement with a, a new regime in Croatia. Can you say a little bit about how that happened and who the people are who take over this thing? So, the leaders of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia were essentially trying to, to stay out of, of, of what came to be known as the Second World War, uh, but eventually, uh, due, due to a series of events that took place in, in March 1941, uh, Hitler decides to invade Yugoslavia and then um, 
in alliance with the other Axis powers to dismember the country and to, to essentially destroy and erase Yugoslavia from the map. And one of the things that emerged out of that invasion was the creation of a new state called the Independent State of Croatia. Um, it's usually known among historians by its acronym, the NDH, which is, these those are the letters that, that essentially um, conform to how it's pronounced in Croatian or Nezavisna Država Hrvatska, NDH, Independent State of Croatia. Um, and the, 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 the leaders of this new state were essentially um, a series of, of Croatian nationalists who had been against the existence of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia since, since at least the, the late 1920s. They were known as the Ustashas, which in the local language means insurgent or insurgents. Uh, and they wanted to create a, an ethnostate or an ethnically pure Croatian nation state a state that would be for those people whom they considered to be um, ethnically Croatian. Interestingly enough, the people they considered uh, to fit into this category were, were Catholics, uh, those whom they considered to be Croatian Catholic, but also uh, the Muslim population in this region, uh, the vast majority of which lived uh, in the, within the historic borders of Bosnia and Herzegovina. So for, for the Ustashas, these were, these were people whom they, whom they called uh, Croats of the Islamic faith. Um, one of the problems was that the Ustasha movement, as it had existed in, since the late 1920s and the 1930s, um, had been under police surveillance and uh, different forms of repression for advancing such nationalist views. And so a lot of them had lived, had fled outside uh, of Yugoslavia. They were in Italy, they were in Austria, they were in Hungary which is to say that the actual numbers of supporters of this movement in the country were very small. And in the Kulinvakov region, um, one finds almost no official members of this movement. And even in northwestern Bosnia, the numbers are extremely small uh, and confined for the most part to the larger towns. So the Ustashas faced this interesting problem of, of essentially trying to establish uh, a state uh, with, with a very, uh, how should we say, uh, a set of politics that was, that was very much based, built on discrimination along the lines of ethnicity and religion, but without actually having the human power or the manpower in the localities to advance this agenda. Um, and so, so one of the, the key challenges that the leaders faced was how to mobilize, uh, those who may consider to be Croats into this movement, that is to say, local Catholics and Muslims. Uh, and one of the key ways um, were, to, were essentially offering material incentives that by joining the Ustasha movements and putting on a uniform uh, and picking up a rifle, that these men now became the new holders of power in these regions and would have the power to essentially um, resolve whatever disputes they had ongoing with neighbors prior to this period. Um, and, and to engage in, in what came to be a very high level of plunder and stealing. Um, so in many ways, uh, it was an interesting uh, phenomena. Uh, it, it was one that was to some extent surprising to me as I began to research this book is that I did not find high levels of, of pre-1941 commitments or ideological commitment or membership of the Ustasha movement among local men. Even and, 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 and so that I had to look for other reasons as to why men would actually join this movement and how the regional and central authorities went about mobilizing local men. Uh, and a lot of it came down to um, offering material incentives 
and offering a chance for local people to essentially upend the, the previous structures of power that had existed in these regions. And it was a small number of people that took advantage of this opportunity. My research shows that it was less than 1% of the nominal Catholic and Muslim population of men that joined the Ustashas. Uh, but as we know, a small number of armed people is, uh, is it, one only needs a small number of armed people to cause an enormous amount of destruction. Uh, and, and at the same time, the reasons they were engaging, I think, can be understood to some extent rationally. Uh, these were people who oftentimes operated on the periphery of their communities. They were not of, oftentimes economically the strongest. Um, and, and this sudden creation of this new state with policies of ethnic persecution offer these individuals um, unprecedented opportunities to immediately rise to power um, and play a role that they never would have otherwise. Uh, the two leaders who became the main Ustashas in Kulinvakov in the town and the region, one of them had run like a tavern and a bar. Um, he was not, not at all uh, a leading man in the community. And, and the other one was known as, as one of the merchants who was the least successful. He was always in debt to everyone. Uh, and all of a sudden, these two men in particular became the key holders of power. So it's not, it's not, it's not impossible to understand why men, some men at least, would have gotten themselves involved with this movement. And, and, and so then, there's this period where the violence takes place in terms of material damage, right? This, this wave of thefts, exclusion. But then you get this explosion of violence in the very first days of Shalom. Maybe you can describe that violence a little bit and say something about why it happens now. Right. So, I mean, this is, this is one of the, the main challenges I faced. And, and it's still a challenge that I think uh, I've tried to, uh, let's say my book offers, I think, the most detailed analysis of, of why violence begins in a small corner of the independent state of Croatia, when and where it does. But, uh, but we need more studies like this, uh, because I, I could only, you know, I was, I was only looking at, at, at one, um, one region essentially and looking at variations within this small region. But, you know, between the period when the NDH is founded in, uh, in the first part of April, um, up until early July, violence is taking place, severe levels of violence is taking place in many, in many areas, but not in others. Um, and it's ebbing and flowing, and, and the reasons for why this is taking place are still very poorly understood. What I tried to do was explain why mass violence did not come to this region until the first few days of July. It's really July 1st through 3rd, 1941, which is when um, everything changes. And the main argument that I advance is that um, in, this, in this region, the local men who joined the Ustashas, um, were, 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 and uh, were, were very much interested, um, in using their new positions to steal, um, to obtain resources, to steal livestock, to steal other kinds of property, to take money. Uh, and, 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 and so that's what they were using their positions for throughout May, June, May and June for the most part. Um, however, as they, as they engaged in this process, the people they were stealing from, the nominal Serb population, many of the men in particular began fleeing to the forests to protect themselves and to protect whatever property they could take with them. And so the local Ustashas, who were, who were small in number, um, began to fear that a rebellion was going to take place, um, which was not an unfounded fear. As you persecute a group of people, 
it's not unlikely that some of them will eventually um, try and remove themselves from the area in which the persecution is taking place and maybe even plan a counterattack, um, which to some extent is what began to take place. A lot of those who had fled to the forests um, were armed. They had weapons because they had recently been mobilized to defend the kingdom of Yugoslavia from the, uh, the Axis attack back uh, in April. So there was this kind of dynamic, which I call mutually reinforcing fears, in which people who are initially targeted for persecution um, uh, flee to an area, begin to arm themselves for a potential counterattack, and those who carried out the initial wave of persecution begin to fear that those people are going to attack them. And so these fears essentially feed off of each other and escalate tension. And so what took place in the Kulinvakov region um, is that as the local officials become aware of this dynamic and as the regional officials become aware and as rebellions begin to break out in other parts of the independent state of Croatia, particularly there was one that had been ongoing in Herzegovina, uh, what the local Ustasho officials begin to plan is what could be called uh, defensive mass violence. In other words, they want to strike first against those whom they think are preparing to attack them. And so July 1st really marks this first defensive attack. Um, I, I use the word defensive without any kind of judgment. It just seems to be, it's the rhetoric that the local leaders offered. Uh, and so they begin these mass attacks on the women and children and whatever men were left in these villages where they felt that uh, a potential rebellion was being organized. Uh, and so that's really where the, 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 the persecution, which at first is, it involves plunder, and here and there, some, some beatings and maybe an execution here and there, arrests, transforms into massacres in which hundreds of people are killed. Uh, and so this, this is this, this explosion of violence that takes place in early July, um, which is really, I think, driven by these mutually reinforcing fears. Of course, driven initially by the Ustasha state, which is engaging in these policies of ethnic discrimination. So let's pause there for a moment for a couple broader questions. One of the points where you, you pause and reflect is the violence in early July driven by ethnic cleavage? That's a good question. Well, I would say the, there's 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 a there's a macro dimension to it, uh, which which very much um, is driven by the, the the policies of persecution by the NDH leaders, the Ustasha leaders, who want to create an ethnically pure nation state. So in their minds. Uh, the ethnic cleavage uh, was obviously of great importance. Uh, and so the policies that they institute and the people that they empower to carry out those policies um, very much has a basis in, 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 a, in a thought pattern around the idea of, of ethnic cleavages. Now, what's interesting is that if you follow kind of the execution, so once uh, of their policies down to the local level, um, the role of ethnic cleavages becomes less clear. Uh, so, so up until that violence, uh, leading up until that violence, uh, I, I mentioned earlier that there's a lot of plunder taking place. So these local Ustasha men are mobilized. These men are mobilized into the Ustashas. They're given this opportunity to steal. And they're told that they can steal or essentially given free reign to steal from the Orthodox population, which they do. Uh, what's interesting is that um, when, they're, when they can no longer find people to steal from who would be considered to be of the Orthodox population, they start stealing from their so-called uh, Catholic and Muslim brothers and sisters. Uh, and, and so, so what, what, then, what that calls into question is to what extent 
uh, does the ethnic cleavage matter as one follows these policies of persecution all the way down to the local level? Um, once the fear, I think, begins to build up that a counterattack is coming, um, and once sporadic instances of violence take place in which there is some shooting back against the Ustashas, it's at that point that I think uh, the, the evidence suggests that among the local population, those men who are mobilized into the Ustashas, that they do uh, begin to want to engage in a serious attack along uh, along ethnic lines, that is to say, to attack the Orthodox villagers and, and essentially root out um, their perceived enemies. But even once those attacks unfold, uh, sometimes, you know, the evidence, I have evidence in the book that shows in the aftermath of a massacre uh, of Orthodox villagers, local Catholics and Muslims, while they're plundering the livestock that's left in these villages, start to fight amongst themselves. Uh, and so the inter-ethnic dimension of the violence seems to be ongoing, even while the inter-ethnic dimension uh, gains in importance. Um, and one sees this on the other side as well, as the, as the Orthodox rebels begin to engage in counterattacks, um, those among them who are not interested in attacking all Muslims and Catholics as a form of revenge, uh, begin to suffer persecution by their own so-called uh, Orthodox brothers, uh, and they are called traitors of the Serbian people. So, uh, so, so, so ethnic cleavages matter, uh, in certain moments and they can not matter in certain moments. And I think this is one of the great challenges of researching, uh, a part of the world like this. And one could probably encounter similar challenges by looking at other complex areas in which there are multiple sides, um, engaged in, in complicated civil war type conflicts is that one can't apply a, a simple kind of binary understanding or a black and white understanding of, of this group versus that group, that the, the intra-ethnic dimensions or the intergroup dimensions always are ongoing and present, and the intergroup dimensions have to be thought of as very fluid and changeable. And I think that's what analyzing, the, analyzing these massacres from the local level shows that, uh, that the, the perceived boundaries really change dramatically day by day and week by week, um, way, way more than I would have ever expected when I began this project a number of years ago. So one of the interesting things about this doing you know, a case study in a, in, in a rural area like this is that it's that many of the characters in your book know each other, and you make a point in the book about the broad assumption. And in the book, you talk about it among um, among scholars of mass violence, but I think it's applicable among ordinary people as well. I don't know, maybe scholars of mass violence can actually be ordinary. But you say that we are inclined to believe that it would be less likely for neighbors to kill each other. Than it would be for people who, for strangers. And you suggest that that's not actually true. So basically, what I see is the the general assumption, I think, is that people find it less likely or more surprising that people who know each other would kill each other. And the mm -hmm. way I read your book is you suggest that's not actually true. Am I reading that right? Yes. I mean, I guess I guess one of the one of the, the kind of general senses I get from reading, uh, from reading the literature on genocide and, and mass violence, um, but particularly on, for, uh, in genocide studies, is this kind of, either, either it's, very, it's very kind of explicit in, in, in a book or just kind of implicit, um, that, it's, that it's even more shocking um, and perplexing that people who know each other or who have lived in close proximity to each other would engage in violence. I mean, the great book by Jan Gross, whose work I've, I've found very 
whose work is important and who, whose work has inspired me. Uh, in his book on neighbors, um, is very much, I think, suffused with this idea that uh, it is it is horrible and terrifying and shocking, uh, shocking and even perplexing uh, that people in in Yevabne, in Poland, that the, the the Polish Catholic and the Jewish population, that there could be this this breakdown and that people who would know each other um, would do this to each other. And so there's this idea, I guess, that I feel is out there uh, in some of the literature that that somehow. Um, we should be shocked by this. Whereas, um, as, as I tried to reconstruct the dynamics of local social relations up to 1941, uh, and in 1941 in my region, um, I guess the evidence suggested to me that, um, people in such close proximity to each other oftentimes had very serious conflicts with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, it might not have been the vast majority of people, but it was certain, certainly among uh, a, certain, a certain section of the population. And that prior to this, this kind of huge upheaval of the establishment of this new state, first the destruction of the previous state and the establishment of this new state, for a number of people, there was no way to resolve these problems. They were just simmering and ongoing. Uh, you know, people with disputes over natural resources, who got to use this stream, who got to graze their cattle in this field, who would build a fence through this field to stop someone else's family or cattle or livestock from going through it. So these, these conflicts that could be not, could not be resolved decisively. And these are people who, who, who dealt with these conflicts, not just for a few weeks, but year after year after year, who knew that s- someone else's family across the hill had taken land and never paid for it. Uh, and so as I, as I began to tease out as much as I could, at least, um, the existence of these conflicts, and then was able to track, at least to some extent, how some of those individuals involved in those conflicts became members of these various units who committed violence. Um, it was not surprising to me. In fact, what I what I began to find was that perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that certain people who are in close proximity to each other um, will engage in violence. And in fact, criminological evidence suggests this uh, massively, that uh, the, you know, in the United States, for example, the murder rate, or, or, or uh, if we look at uh, crimes like rape, are oftentimes committed among people who know each other to some extent. Sometimes quite, sometimes quite uh, to to a great extent. And so, I don't necessarily think that uh, we should be so shocked that you know, kind of neighbors. This idea of that neighbors. I mean, I think it's, I think it's almost like a the, the word neighbors is understood in, in kind of a morally loaded way uh, that it, that it should be an insulation against violence where. Um, I'm not so sure that's the case. I think it can be, and it, and it can also be a generator of violence. So, so there's that word, and you use it in the title, or a variation of the word, violence is a generative force. And how does the violence of early July reshape the participants on all sides' sense of their own identities? So, I mean, this, this also comes back to your, to the previous discussion we were having about, you know, kind of the role of ethnic cleavages. You know, what, what does ethnicity mean to people? Um, we're so used to thinking about societies in which there seem to be these, these categories in which everyone is supposed to fit into as, as being composed of these kind of mutually exclusive, internally bounded, externally, sorry, externally bounded, internally homogeneous groups. Um, but, the, the local level evidence really shows some interesting rapid transformations in what ethnic categories and boundaries mean to people um, as violence is unfolding. 
And so, you know, one of the, there, there's, I, I try and show this through a number of examples in the book, but um, maybe it's better just to tell a quick story of one to, to illustrate this. And so, you know, after that initial blast of violence, July 1st through 3rd, um, there is this occasion in which two of the men who survive, nominally Orthodox Serb, find themselves on the edge of a meadow. And they look across and they see their neighbor, um, who's a woman, who's nominally Catholic. Uh, and her name is Stana Pavicic. And prior to 1941, they knew her by her name. And they knew her um, as a neighbor. And she knew them as well. And this is oftentimes how people would refer to each other. It shouldn't surprise us, by name or hello neighbor rather than hello ethnic category. Uh, but uh, when they see her across the way, after having suffered um, intense violence by those whom they would perceive to be Catholic and Muslim, the Ustashas, they simply call out to her, not by her name and not by neighbor, but simply as, and she's there by herself, they just yell out to her and say, you Croats are filling us into bottomless pits. When our time comes, we will do the same to you. And so it's, it's through examples like that where you see how individuals, how, how even in, in everyday discourse, everyday conversation, uh, individuals become, even though they may be standing there alone, uh, part of a you plural. So you Croats, she became an ethnic category. She became a manifestation of an entire community that was now understood to be an enemy. Um, and they were referring to themselves not simply as two men or by their names, but as a manifestation of a larger victim community that, at least in nominal terms, would have been defined as uh, ethnically as Serb. And so, and this was all the product of these massacres that had taken place. Um, so you see this hardening of these ethnic categories and this transformation of individuals into, collect, into collective categories uh, that the violence begins to, um, to generate. Um, it's not to say that these categories had never existed before. It's not to say that um, uh, no one would have ever indicated in any kind of census or any kind of document, his or her religion, or perhaps even in a political, uh, perhaps voting for a political party to have expressed a desire that he or she was part of a certain nation or ethnic group. But in everyday talk, this was not necessary. This was, this, we should never understand, we should never think this was the way in which people would normally talk. Um, the evidence doesn't suggest that. But in the aftermath of these massacres, it suddenly became a way in which people began to address each other, at least some people. Um, and so, so that would be one of the ways. And it's, it's a very dramatic transformation. Uh, and, and to some extent, it's counterintuitive in which um, ethnic violence um, committed by an, a, a small number of people actually creates a much wider perception of society as divided into these rigid categories, ethnic categories that are understood to be in a very antagonistic relationship, rather than that situation leading to violence. Um, in other words, the violence creates that or generates it, as I argue. So, and here we're going to kind of skip over some stuff here, and I'll just summarize by, by suggesting that what emerges in the aftermath of, of this violence in the first days of July is, is the, maybe not the emergence, but the acceleration of armed resistance among, we'll call them Serbs, with quotation marks around it, recognizing the inaccuracy or at least the vagueness of that. And the intensif intensifying violence in the region. One of the questions you dwell on in your discussion of this is the, the discussion amid, amongst the um, resistance about how to treat the people who have been persecuting them, uh, about this question of whether um, 
uh, uh, this debate between advocates of restraint, uh, selective killings based on people's actions rather than generalized killings based on categories, uh, debates between advocates of restraint and advocates of, of categorical violence. Um, so, so what can we learn from this part of the story about, about when and why advocates of restraint can, re, can prevail um, and, and how fragile or powerful that advocacy of restraint can be? Yeah, it's, it's something that I, I devote an entire chapter to in the book, um, which I call the, ch- the challenge of restraint, um, because the, the reaction to the Ustasha violence um, takes many forms. And there, there, are, there are, among these rebels or insurgents, there are, there are different ways in which people begin to think about um, how to resist. Uh, and just as you said, some want categorical revenge. Some are much more interested in what some political scientists might call selective violence. Um, and, and so what I, what I try to do, um, this was actually, this was actually a question. I mean, the, the whole reason this chapter emerged, um, came out of a discussion that I had with a political scientist many years ago, who was actually a member of my, my dissertation committee. And he, he asked me a, a difficult, but I think great question during my, during my doctoral defense, uh, which, which was, kind of thing. exactly, which was, which was something like, um, okay, so you've made an argument as to why you think this violence has occurred in the Kulinvakov, you know, during these 48 hours in Kulinvakov. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, the argument sounds convincing. So my question is, this is, this is what he was saying. My question is, um, did such massacres take place more or less in every town where there had been previous Ustasha persecution? And my answer was no. And he said, well, so how can you be sure your, your argument for why it took place in Kulinvakov is sound if you haven't also analyzed why it didn't take place where in which the, the kind of the previous structural and even situational conditions were similar? And I remember thinking, now that's a great question. Uh, and that was actually a question that got me leading, sort of pushed me in the direction of reading more political science literature. Because I think at the time, as a historian, I had a much more kind of, you know, stereotypical idea of, 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 you know, browsing through the American Political Science Review and thinking, you know, there's, there's equations in here and there's charts and what are these people trying to do? And I don't understand, you know, not only do I not fully follow what they're doing, but this, what, what is the purpose of all of this? Uh, to have 12 hypotheses and all of this so-called data. Uh, and to refer to history as process tracing rather than history. But this question was a great one. And, and it, 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 in all seriousness, it really led me to start reading a lot more political science literature. And it got me thinking about this question of variation. You know? Um, how, how can I be sure that my, my reasons for, for why violence takes place are sound if I don't also look at why violence, uh, can be prevented or avoided in certain regions? Uh, within the same sub, sub, sub region, let's say. So I began looking for different cases, uh, in which it seemed like massacres were very much likely to take place, but for some reason were avoided. Um, and I tried to research them as much as I could. It's much harder to research the absence of something than the presence of something. So it, coming up with documents and, and other forms of, of data for this was very, very difficult. But I did manage to find several cases. Um, and, it, and, and what I began to, to zero in on were a series of strategies that seemed to, to some extent in certain areas, have a basis in, in previous, uh, let's say, kind of 
uh, structural historical factors, you know, for example, the existence of some sort of communist type movement in a region um, created a basis for greater levels of inter-ethnic cooperation because the communists tended to, um, in a sense, try to recruit people, you know, without regard to religious or ethnic background. They were interested in, in class politics or or, or politics of, uh, of national solidarity in certain ways. In other words, ethnicity was not key necessarily uh, in the same way that other political parties would recruit. That these factors somehow sometimes made a difference uh, in making restraints of violence more likely in a region. But because people were moving around so much in this area and there was so much upheaval, um, oftentimes it became difficult to track whether those structural factors would matter because the individuals from a region would move, you know, 50, 100 kilometers to a different area. And so what I began to, to discover in these instances in which it seemed like killing was about to start but was somehow prevented would be these kind of situational micro-level strategies that would be employed um, in these very tense moments. Um, you know, for example, there's one in which... Um, uh, you know, a, a, a series of rebels, uh, insurgents come into a Muslim village and some of them are trying to set the houses on fire and want to commit violence. And one of their commanders walks up to a house, knocks on the door, and out comes this man who's terrified, uh, nominally Muslim, and the commander kisses him on his cheeks twice and then turns around and presents him to the rest of the fighters and, and you know, yells out to everyone, um, you know, we are not here to hurt people like this. We are here only to chase down our enemies, which are the Ustashas. So I mean, it's very active on the ground, moment to moment work in which uh, individuals try to fight against processes of dehumanization, to always present potential enemy groups as composed of, in fact, individuals whose behaviors matter, not perceived belonging to ethnic categories. Um, so, so I mean, I, I, I tried to, to look at a series of instances, and, and I'm, not, I'm not sure I actually developed a theory of restraint as much as, I was, as much as I was able to actually extract out a series of strategies that were employed uh, that, that really come down to these, these situational moments of great tension, you know, the need to, the, the capacity to, to assess fighters' moods prior to an operation to see if there's an actual, um, let's say, majority of people uh, in an armed group who are willing to practice restraint. And if they sound like they're actually interested in revenge, to then not order that military operation, to avoid military operations, and to instead uh, rely on a group of people, a much smaller group of people, who would be willing to practice restraint. That would be one strategy. The other one would be to fight against these processes of dehumanization, as I mentioned earlier, by, by never allowing people to be thought of as just simply Muslims or Catholics or Croats, but to always deal with people as individuals. Some of these commanders were really intent on doing that. Um, uh, and, and in other cases, literally being ready to use force um, against one, uh, one's own supposed fighters. Uh, this comes up again and again in the evidence. Those who are willing to literally pull out their guns uh, and, and cock their weapons and hold them up against their so-called brothers and sisters to demand that they do not carry out an act of revenge. Um, oftentimes that made the difference. Whereas those who would simply hesitate in those moments, uh, a massacre would take place. They would have lost the initiative. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that I, that I was, I was struggling with and, and it was difficult for me as a, as a historian was, um, how much do kind of longer term structural factors matter in making restraint likely in a certain area? And how much do these situational factors matter? Um, and it seemed to me in certain ways that it was really 
these moment-to-moment decisions, which obviously have a historical basis, but it's difficult to find that, say, for example, in voting patterns or the more traditional ways that you know a political scientist might try and uh, argue as to why we see more violence in one area and less in another. Um, so, so I definitely think it's a part of the research that I found fascinating, but it's one that I think I'd probably pursue um, in greater detail across a much larger region, uh, looking at this question of variation, particularly around the presence of violence and the absence. So, so we're almost out of time. So I'm going to ask you to come back then to to the story you told at the beginning for the, the 6th, 7th, and 8th of September. Um, given all you've said, what can you say about why the killings happened and, and, and why there wasn't restraint? Well, I mean, the revenge is one of the key factors that led to these killings. Uh, this desire for revenge, the amount of violence that had been committed um, against the perceived Serbian population by this small number of Catholic and Muslim Ustashes was immense, uh, particularly throughout July and August. Um, so the desire for revenge is very strong. But that in and of itself, there were a number of instances, I didn't actually narrate this when I told that, that kind of truncated version of, of those 48 hours, but during those 48 hours, there were actually some very dramatic acts of rescue. Uh, so, so uh, several hundred women and children were saved in, at various points by a number of insurgents uh, who are willing to do what I was just talking about, literally threatened to use force against those seeking revenge. Uh, and they were able to save people. They were able to save not a small number of people uh, in doing so. And so one of the things that I think allowed that violence to take on such... Uh, to, to rise to such, to, to continue to cascade during those 48 hours to such large proportions. It's one of the larger uh, massacres that took place in this part of Europe, uh, in this part of the former Yugoslavia during 1941. And 1941 was by far the most violent year. Um, was uh, the fact that these advocates of escalation, the advocates of revenge, um, managed to uh, take advantage of structural weaknesses and situational weaknesses that the advocates of restraint, um, uh, that, that was characterized with the advocates of restraint. So those, those groups of, of that small group of fighters who were interested in selective violence, who left on the evening of September 6th, um, offered the advocates of escalation really just a golden opportunity to, to inflame the situation. Uh, that was a key difference that took place there. Um, the failure of those on the morning of September 8th uh, in the Serbian village of Martinbrod, um, and I don't, I don't mean to condemn them, but, but in a sense to actually threaten force. Uh, they probably couldn't have, they probably would have lost their lives. They were very few in number. It was a very small number of people. But uh, we don't get a sense there was, that there was an actual use of major force against those seeking revenge. Whereas in other cases that I analyzed, those who were really wet, willing to put guns to people's heads or chests, literally, were sometimes able to stop these massacres from taking place. Um, the other thing was just uh, uh, the kind of the momentum of the killing. Once the advocates of restraint had really lost the initiative, which was, which was really the, the, the big place they lost, it was by leaving on the night of September 6th, the vast majority of them left. Once the killing had unfolded during the next 24 hours, um, and once this frenzy of violence and this large number of victims had taken place, um, it became much more difficult to put brakes on that. I don't think it would have been impossible, but those who were threatening violence on the morning of September 8th had been already been involved in killing for at least a day and a half. 
There was no psychological barrier to cross at that point. There was very, there was much less stress uh, that would have that would have been there had it been one of the first uh, the first phase of the massacre of those massacres during those forty eight hours. So, on one hand, there was this strong desire for revenge. There was a, a sizable number of people who were intent on taking revenge. Um, but I still think Kulin Vakuf probably could have been the, the story of Kulin Vakuf could have been discussed just like some of the stories of the other cases of restraint that I analyze in the book as one in which the advocates of restraint managed to succeed. Um, but, uh, even though they were few in number, but there were mistakes that were made. So I think looking at violence at the micro level also requires, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking in more general terms now, to also look at uh, when the situation warrants why those who are opposed to violence fail. So it's, it's not just enough to look at those who've committed the violence. It's, uh, and this is also, you know, one could look at, at recent events just, you know, I'm thinking back uh, just to last weekend in Charlottesville with, uh, with these counter demonstrations. You know, it's not just a question of the two sides shouting back and forth and a car plowing into a group of people. Um, it's also a question of what the police did and didn't do uh, to restrain the sides as well. There's also a failure there that needs to be talked about and not simply just two warring factions, to put it in more general terms. Um, and so I think, I think that also comes across clearly in this book, which is to look at uh, why those opposed to violence succeed and fail and to take that seriously in our explanations of, of why large scale violence takes place. So we could talk for another hour or two about this, but I don't think that's fair to you. So here I'll say to the <laughs> listeners that, um, that there's much more to the book than, than we've been able to touch on here. In particular, there's a significant section on how this was remembered. So here I'll just suggest that you go out and buy the book or get the book and, and, and read it. It's a wonderful book. I'll ask Max by, by asking you the same question I ask everybody else, and this is maybe a timely time to ask it, uh, because I don't know about you, for me, uh, my springs or um, fall semester starts in a week and a half, and I have these delusions that I have a week where I can actually get something done uh, <laughs> other than writing syllabi. I know it's a delusion. So maybe you could suggest a book or two or, or a movie or... or Something that I should read or watch during this kind of fictional, notional week of freedom that I have coming. Uh, sure. Um, so one of the things that this project, uh, one of the things that I, how I changed during, I think, this project is that I, I began to read far outside of my discipline. Mm -hmm. um, in order to educate myself about the various uh theoretical issues that, that, I, that I sensed were, were very much part of this story. Um, and so, so I looked at, at different geographical regions, but also um, I, was, I became very much interested in just, you know, the questions of narrative and question, the methodological approach to telling the story of violence. And, and I think that in many ways was one of the greatest challenges in writing this book. And some of the Two, two books, and one of the books, one of the books was made into a movie. So I'll just talk about those for a minute that I th that I found to be extremely inspirational and important while I was writing this book. Um, one is is a play that's called. Uh, it was originally written in French, but the English translation. The title is called Scorched uh, by by the the author's name is Wadi Mawad. He's uh, of Lebanese origin and and uh, spends a lot of time working and, and and writing here in Montreal. And the film um, the film was directed by Denis Villeneuve, who's also done the film Sicario, 
and the film was eventually put out by the the French word, the French name, which, which is Incendie, but Scorched is the name of the film, and it the film is really about. Uh, it seems to take place somewhere in the Middle East. You know, it, the, the 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 setting looks like Lebanon, perhaps, but I, I don't think it's actually important what it is. Uh, it looks like a society that is that has a lot of cleavages along the lines of religion. You know, Islam, Christianity is what it looks like. But the film and the play is really about um, the ways in which people who experience extreme acts of violence can also commit extreme acts of violence. And I think this book and this film challenged me to think about the importance of trying to take seriously the experience of people who find themselves in those what might seem to be contradictory positions. Uh, and to not tell the story of violence in such a kind of uh, black and white way that uh, it was very important, that it is very important to take seriously, to take as seriously, as much as we can, as seriously the experience of people who commit violence, because those, those may also be people who have suffered violence. Um, and even if they haven't, to, to tell the history of violence or tell a history of violence, the experience of those who perpetrate it uh, demands our attention and demands our sensitive attention. And that may, that's not an easy one. My students don't like it when I talk about that in the classroom. Uh, that's a hard one for them. Um, another book that I would recommend is by the historian uh, of the United States. His name is Carl Jacoby. He's written an amazing book called Shadows at Dawn, an Apache Massacre and the Violence of History, uh, about uh, a massacre that took place in the American Southwest at the end of the, in, in the 19th century. And this book, similar to, to the play Scorched, also uh, tells a history of this massacre, of, of violence, through multiple perspectives, offering as much respect and empathy as possible to these various, these ver these, these various perspectives, um, without, uh, without, you know, loading it as some sort of moral story of good versus bad, but honoring human experience and all of its complexity uh, as, as, as kind of a, the beginning and end of the, I think the, the, the book itself, the argument, I think, is the narrative approach. And I would even argue this play and this film Scorch, the, if there's a, if there's a thesis and argument to it, it's, it's, uh, multiple perspectives, empathy, and taking seriously the experience of those who find themselves in situations of violence, um, and not simply, uh, innocent victims. They, of course, deserve attention and, and deserve great sensitivity. But if we want to actually explain violence, um, Everyone actually deserves probably as much as we can the same level of sensitivity. And I think that is the great challenge. That was the great challenge I faced in writing this book. Um, and I think it's going to be the great challenge I will face when the book is translated. Uh, it's going to, it's, it's being translated. It's going to be published soon in Bosnia. Um, whether, whether the book can be read, uh, by, by, by in, in a society in which I think people are still very much reeling from this most recent war in the 1990s. Uh, will a story like this that tries to take seriously multiple sides um, be accepted or will will it not be accepted? It's, it's, it's an open question that I'm interested to see what will happen with. So after you're done with the translation, what's, what's your next project? The next project uh, is actually I'm writing, I'm writing an essay now um, that I was asked to write for, uh, for American Historical Review, which is a reassessment or a reappraisal of, of the, the classic work by Benedict Anderson, uh, Imagine Communities. So how has his work affected 
the study of nationalism and particularly how historians uh, study nationalism. So, so it's something completely different. Um, and it's much more of a, of a think piece and a historiographical essay. In terms of a, of a new book, um, this, this book was actually began as a chapter in my doctoral dissertation and, and became a book. So the rest of the chapters, uh, one of them was published, but another one, which is still somewhere around a hundred and something pages is sitting there, um, kind of, kind of looking at me from a shelf, uh, so to speak, uh, waiting, I think, to turn into a book. And it's also a, a micro study of, of, of a complex, uh, series of, of violent events that took place in Croatia, uh, in a town called Glina. Uh, in which a large number of people were, were killed inside an Orthodox church. So the dynamics of that violence and then the, the dynamics of memory. But what I'm thinking of doing is, is, is actually expanding it into a much more comparative study. I want to also bring in uh, perhaps another microhistory of a region that had a completely different experience. Uh, in other words, a much less violent one. And to pursue, I think, much more in a much more detailed way um, this question of variation in a region, you know, both, uh, the, the region that I would pick is only about 15 or 20 kilometers away and yet had a completely different experience in 1941. Uh, and so I'm much more interested in trying to understand at this point, um, what makes, what makes certain regions in such close proximity so violent and also so not violent, uh, and how to explain those questions. It's, it's, it emerged in one chapter of this book, but it's something that I think I'd like to pursue in much greater detail in the future. Well, it sounds like a great project. I think reading your foreword and, and the introduction, it took you, um, I don't know, maybe a decade to write this one. So yeah, yeah. maybe a decade from now, you and I will get a chance to chat again on new books and stuff. Yeah, I hope so. But in the meantime, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me and for all the great questions. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to an interview with Max Bergholtz about his new book. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Benefit Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join us next time when I'll talk with Ethan Hollander about his book, Hegemony in the Holocaust, State Power and Jewish Survival in Occupied Europe. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.